Welcome back, everyone, to the Distracted DM Podcast, the only D&D podcast in existence. I am your host, Elliot Gardner, and this week's episode is a special one. It is the start of a four-episode series on the various roles of a DM as described in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Those four roles are architect, storyteller, actor, and finally, referee. Today's episode will be on the DM's role as an architect, specifically the DM's position as a world builder. Perhaps one of the most daunting aspects of DMing is the process of world building. Building an entire universe out of your own imagination is a fantastically intimidating idea. To be honest, this is one of the areas of DMing that I struggle the most with. Luckily, there are several ways to mitigate this or to even avoid it entirely. The first and easiest way is to simply use the settings that already exist in the world of D&D, the two main settings being Galerion and Eberron. While there are source materials that you can pay for, which will give you a well of world information, there's also a multitude of free online sources that can give you the basics of the world. This is the primary method that I have used for the majority of my campaigns. This takes a lot of the heavy lifting out of the process of world building. It also provides a framework for you to work in. Another benefit is that a lot of DMs use these settings, and so there's a lot of online support for them. Another method, and perhaps the most fun, is to blatantly steal someone else's intellectual property. If there's an author you like, how about a TV show that inspires your imagination? Is there an old 80s movie that's just stuck in your head for years? Use them. There is nothing stopping you from using these worlds as a setting for your players. In fact, there's a special kind of fun when a player recognizes a reference you're using. An example. In my current campaign, my players are involved with some fairy court politics, uh, with the fate of the world hanging in the balance. For the majority of the rules of how the fae work, how the fairy courts operate, and the interactions between fae and mortals, I've used Jim Butcher's Dresden Files as a framework. Now, you might say, Elliot, intellectual theft is good and all, but I really want to create a world of my own. And I hear ya! Before we get into the actual process of world building, there is a helpful concept that fantasy author Brandon Sanderson uses when building his worlds. This is the concept of the hollow iceberg. The idea being is that there is a part of the world that your players can immediately see. This is the part of the iceberg that is above the water. Then there's the lore and the history and the depth of the world that players can't see, which is part of the iceberg that is underwater. The idea of the hollow iceberg is that there is just enough below the water, an outer shell if you will, that players can discover facts about the world but there's not a fully fleshed out world underneath. What this means practically is that you don't have to develop 10,000 years of lore for your world full of historical references and biographies. As long as you have a rough idea of how you want a particular historical event to have played out or a general idea about how a particular religion works, you don't need more details until players actually discover it. With this concept, we can start building a world. There are roughly five steps to initially creating a world. Those steps are the creation story, the gods, the world itself, the races that inhabit that world, and finally, magic. Remember, we are not looking to fully flesh out our world in each of these steps. We are merely trying to create an initial framework that we can expand upon later. For the fun of it, as we are going through these steps, I will be building a world using them, so we have an idea of how this process should work. Step one, the creation story. While going all the way back to a creation story may seem a bit extreme, trust me, it does matter. How your world was created has lasting effects on how it operates and can be helpful in explaining certain quirks um, of the world to your players. The general approach to a creation story is that some great power, usually gods, primordials, or titans, create the world for some purpose, usually to have mortals to play with or to simply have a place where the gods can inhabit and enact their schemes. For our world, we're going to say that it was created by two primordials, 
Onir and Horos, who created the world as a bet between them. Onir, being the embodiment of decay, bet that the world wouldn't last 10,000 years. Horos, being the embodiment of rejuvenation, bet that the world would last long after she and Onir ceased to exist. This idea of a cosmic bet can be a good starting point for religions or the relationships between gods. This idea of rejuvenation and decay could and should affect the world itself. As an example, there could be large swaths of land that are filled with decay contrasted with fertile valleys. Step 2. The Gods now that we have a creation story, we can move to the gods themselves. Now, there's an easy way to cheat these steps. Take the Greek or Egyptian or Norse pantheons and just rename the gods. You can also take the multitude of pantheons detailed in the D&D settings. But for authenticity's sake, I will attempt to create a small collection of gods as an example. In our setting, we will say that gods have only existed for as long as sentient life has existed. There are many theories as to why this is, but the prevalent one is that gods are formed from the thoughts and desires of sentient beings. This creates a rough separation between two sets of gods, those who manifest as quote positive emotions of sentient beings and those who represent the quote negative emotions of beings. For simplicity's sake, we're going to lump several emotions together into one god. Remember, we're not trying to fully flesh out a world here, we're just making enough to be workable. So, with that in mind, uh, we will have Lutin, goddess of love, joy, and peace, with her counterpart, Ubin, god of hate, misery, and wrath. Next will be Felon, god of levity, adventure, and spontaneity, and his counterpart, Zogin, god of toil, stagnation, and conquest. And finally, we have Agton, god of imagination and invention, and their counterpart, Mutin, god of trickery, lies, and foul play. These six gods will give us something to work with, and as an added benefit, they should be able to easily be assigned cleric domains in case your party wants to worship one of them. Step 3. The World Itself Map building may be some people's forte, but it is certainly not mine, and it's probably where I struggle the most in this process that I already struggle with. For our world, we're going to say there is a large continent surrounded by oceans. The center of the continent is filled with what are called havens, which are places where Horos, our primordial of rejuvenation, has endued their power, creating paradises for sentient life to thrive in. In here is where we'll find most of our major cities and powerful nations. Along the outskirts of the continent are what are called the Wastes place where Onir has exerted their influence to create miles upon miles of decaying soil and rock. Beings that live in the wastes are a special kind of dangerous due to how to survive such harsh conditions. We're not going to create nations and realms, but just the geography of the world. We can set up the nations naturally um, as they flow from the reality of the geography. We could have a nation of zealots to Zogin living in the wastes trying to bring their dark god into the mortal realm. We have an island in the middle of a vast lake that houses a powerful city-state in the center of one of the larger havens. The possibility are almost endless. Something to note here, at this point in the world meaning process is that each step builds upon the other. Not only this, but each step defines the steps after it. Having an idea of how your world was created affects how we make the geography of the world. Knowing the gods of the world allows us to have a starting point by which to build nations. Step 4 races. This is where things start to get tricky. With the previous three steps, you can create the whole world without changing the core mechanics of D&D. Races are a different matter entirely. A basic part of character creation is selecting a race, which in turn affects how your character plays. With this in mind, when making a world, it makes the most sense to populate it with the races that are already in the D&D setting. This, however, is not a pass to be uncreative. You can change the context of the races to match your world. For instance, Drow normally exists in the Underdark, hating the surface world. In our world, we could have 
them be survivors of the waste, hating those in the havens for their life of luxury and ease. Feel free to get creative. The only thing I would advise is not to change the bonuses of races, since this would make mechanical changes which are a pain. Step 5. Magic. Magic is similar to races, and that fundamentally changing it changes the core mechanics of the game. Because of this, when making magic for your world, the easiest thing to do is to think about the prevalency of magic and how it is perceived by different races and regions. An example of this, in one of the campaigns I played, a DM created a distinction between what he called weave magic, the magic of sorcerers, and blood magic, uh, the magic of wizards. I quite like the distinction a lot, so we're going to use it for our world as well. Remember, stealing intellectual property is totally fine. Magic that is innately known is known as blood magic and is revered by multiple races, especially those close to the wastes, as procuring magical education that far from civilization can be difficult. The closer you get to the center of the continent, the more weave magic is revered. This provides some interesting interactions between your party and NPCs, depending on what part of the world they are in. With that final step, we have the basics of a world that with a little bit more work could be made ready for a party to hop in and explore. By breaking down the process into steps, it makes the whole process a lot easier and hopefully much less intimidating. A couple of final notes when it comes to world building. Consistency is always key, but in world building, it is vital. While it is important in general, your world has to be consistent. If not, it is way too easy for your players to feel like they are being cheated out of a good story or a triumphant moment. If you establish that magic works in a certain way, stick to it. If you need to change it, have a conversation with your party outside of session to let them know that, hey, I want to change this and to get their feedback on it. Something else to keep in mind when world building is to remember that you are telling a collective story with your players. It can be tempting when you spend a lot of time building a world to get frustrated when a player or players interact with it in a way that you did not foresee or did not want. Remember, you are simply building a stage for your players to act on. You are not writing a book. If these concepts sound familiar to you, that's because they are both part of my 10 Commandments of DMing episode, which I released a few weeks back. If you want to learn more about that, check out that episode. Finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Distracted DM Podcast. Today's episode is the first part of a four-part miniseries as we go through the various roles a DM plays. If you like this episode, feel free to leave a good rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more content like this, feel free to hit that oh-so-sweet follow button on whatever podcast service you use. Thank you again, and as always, stay adventurous.